Thank you very much, and let me extend my own welcome to everyone here, but a special welcome to today's panelists, and a special thank you to today's panelists, all extremely busy people who have taken time out from a wide variety of obligations to take a moment to be here with us at Princeton uh, to help celebrate the centennial of the graduate school. I am personally very much indebted to each of the panelists uh, for being here to say nothing of my many debts to them uh, that grow out of their leadership in higher education over the years. So thank you all very much for coming. Uh, let me just briefly introduce the panelists. I've told them, uh, we had breakfast together this morning, I told them I would be very brief just so you know who each of these people are, although I think many of them are probably well known to you. I'll just start on my left uh, and introduce them extremely briefly. Uh, Don Randall is president of the University of Chicago. As an undergraduate 62 and a graduate, uh, a graduate degree in 67 from the music school. Hunter Rawlings is next to him, a PhD in classics from Princeton. I've known Hunter for a long time, first as president of the University of Iowa and now as president of Cornell. Next to him, someone who probably needs no introduction at all here at Princeton is Neil Rudenstein, of course a graduate of 56, class of 56. and. Uh, was a longtime provost and distinguished member of this community and, of course, now president of Harvard. I think I neglected to mention that Hunter's field is classics. He told me yesterday when he arrived on campus, he went immediately over to the classics department to see how they were doing over there. And uh, Neil, of course, seems to know a lot about just about everything, but I think Renaissance literature was his specialty, at least as a graduate student. Next to Neil is George Rupp of the class of 64 has been Dean of the Divinity School at Harvard, uh, President of Rice, and now President of Columbia. And Ruth Simmons, also very well known to everyone here, spent many years working with us here on our campus, an honorary degree recipient here at Princeton 96, and of course her own scholarly area is in Romance uh, languages. So once again, uh, welcome everyone. I'm very grateful to you all for being here. Now. <laughs> What's that place again? <laughs> I apologize to you, Ruth. Uh, we've had some preliminary correspondence amongst ourselves in the panel and decided the way we'd organize today's session is we will, uh, I will initiate some conversations amongst the panelists on a number of topics. We will, however, no later than uh, 10.30 turn to questions uh, from the audience because the panelists are eager to respond to questions which may be of interest to the audience. But there are at least uh, two topics that we thought we would begin our discussions with. And the first of those are the implications of the information technology revolution, both for teaching on campus or possibly teaching off campus or away from campus. Uh, I don't know what to call it, online learning, distance learning. Uh, I think you all understand very clearly what the issues are. And of course, opinions in this area vary everywhere from various futurists who think we'll all be hanging out in cyberspace uh, 20 or 30 years from now and there won't be any need for communities of learning as we've understood them in terms of a physical coherence in a single geographic spot. Two other people who think this is just another technology that's come along, it'll be helpful, but it's not going to change 
the basic structure of our educational institutions in at least any fundamental way, and of course there are opinions uh, in be all in between those two structures. So the first question I would like to address uh, to the panel and uh, is the issue of what they believe, either on campus or off campus, uh, the, some of the important implications of what we call the information revolution uh, will be as we look ahead over the next uh, decade or two. Who would like to begin the discussion? Neil, I'll ask you. <laughs> we haven't got time to wait and see here. Hi. Hi. Well, let me just say that I think uh, the information technology revolution, let's call it for a moment, is probably the most profound uh, innovation in higher education and K through 12 and the rest of life uh, that's happened technologically in the last century because of one or two quite simple things. Uh, uh, first of all, all the other technologies, whether it was radio or television or other things that people said would revolutionize education, have had a huge impact on society, but not on education, except negatively sometimes. Uh, I think that the key, obviously, to this new technology is that, one, it's interactive, uh, which means that you don't just sit there and look at something, but you actually do something, and you become an active searcher, researcher, driver yourself. Uh, and second, it's immensely versatile. Uh, that is, it is not a technology. You can look at things, you can push things around, you can have chat groups uh, and talk on it, uh, you can uh, store things and access them, you can manipulate things, etc. So it's a whole series of technologies bundled together. And I'll stop in a second, I'll just say that therefore it has already created on I think probably all of our campuses the capacity to reinforce and extend uh, learning in all kinds of ways that we really would not have imagined even 10 years ago. But I mean those quite literally, extend and reinforce. Rarely is it a substitute for, although there are times when it can be a substitute for, but at least in our first degree programs, professional and undergraduate, uh, rarely is it a substitute for actual human learning, uh, but it can do an immense amount to create a new universe of knowledge and information to back up what we already do, and it's very rich material. Thank you. Other comments of panel? Hunter? Um, I'll just add to Neil's statement of the power of this new technology, the fact that young people are obviously very familiar with it and find it very attractive. Many new technologies are not attractive. Um, in fact, I can think of a lot of technologies that are not at all attractive to any of us. Uh, but this is one that's extremely attractive, especially to the young. They master it at an early age. They're way ahead of our faculty, and of course that means light years ahead of administrators like us. And as a result, they use it constantly. I can't get my far-flung children to send me a letter at all, but they will certainly send email at the drop of a hat, and it's wonderful for that because it's accessible to them, as Neil says, but furthermore, it's something that they really do take to personally, and as a result, I think it's run like wildfire across our campuses, and we now find students instructing faculty members in its use and power, and I think this has added a great deal to uh, its significance in the educational process. We're finding, for example, at Cornell, and I'm sure you're finding it at Princeton, that 
we're using it a lot on campus, never mind the off-campus for the moment, but it's being used tremendously in on-campus courses for communication. Thank you, George. Uh, I usually like to see the glasses more than half empty, but mine is, I've drained most of it already <laughs> because of a gift from my grandson that I'm trying to uh, keep from scratching my throat the whole time. So uh, let me let me talk a little bit about the, the shadow side of, of the new media. I agree with everything that Neil and Hunter said. I think it's enormously powerful. It's obviously transforming much of the education we do on campus, potentially also off campus. And I agree, Neil, that it's interactive and, and therefore it can extend and reinforce what we do in, in classrooms and in more conventional learning situations. But it also can be very isolating. A chat group is not the same as a seminar. And I, I think that we really, we need to take steps to make sure that we, while taking advantage of the enormous power of this technology, don't let it come so to dominate uh, our thinking that the methods of interpersonal interaction at the undergraduate and graduate level that are fundamental to our kinds of institutions uh, get shortchanged. I'm not suggesting that you aren't fully in agreement with that. I just want to call attention to the fact that we shouldn't be Pollyannish about, about this technology. And I'd even extend that to email. Uh, it's, it is, we've had, our, our children have lived around the world, and so it's been an enormous advantage to be able to stay in contact instantaneously wherever they are. Um, but I'll just speak from my own email account, which is widely known because it's, it's just rough at Columbia. And I, I tell you, the Anybody amount of... write that down, you can... <laughs> More widely known now than ever before. <laughs> the, the amount of, of you know, if someone had to sit down, write out a letter, address an envelope and put a stamp on it, uh, that would greatly cut down the amount of trivial communication that goes on, at least for somebody in a, in a physical position. <clears throat> so just two minor ways in which the glass is not only... That's cool. why you don't know my email address. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have one. <laughs> okay. Ruth? Well, I, I think there's no question that the both the there's a lot of promise uh, in um, the technologies that are developing now and that will they'll all in many different ways affect our lives. I guess one of the things that uh, really adding to what George has said, one of the things that we have not yet explored sufficiently is the sociology of all of this. Uh, and at a moment in our country where civic engagement has become so endangered uh, participation in the democratic process is becoming increasingly endangered. I do worry about the impact of these technologies on the kind of uh, democracy that we have. Um, I think that uh, we've taught, we've heard about the alienation of uh, younger generations and the fact that uh, some of the uses of technology really play into the tendency to be separate from society. Uh, it's awfully hard to hold up and I remember, in fact, Harold, when I was at Princeton, I had a student who was a brilliant student uh, and uh, he, he was missing. And uh, I was getting these uh, slips from the dean's office about uh, student in difficulty and so on. And as director of studies, I undertook to try to find him and see what the problem was. Well, as a brilliant student, he would happen to be holed up in his room. 
uh, uh, playing video games and, and, um, and uh, working on his computer a lot of the time. Um, so I think it's not an insignificant issue for us, and I don't think we've yet engaged that. So that's one thing that I worry about, the issue of building civility in our uh, country, uh, working, uh, teaching students to work with other people of very uh, disparate backgrounds. That is, I haven't yet seen how technology is helping that, and we better find out quickly how it is going to uh, help. I also think that we are not seeing the killer applications, as they is known in the in the field, that are going to really uh, set this on fire. And they, those killer applications will come. Uh, but what are they going to be? Uh, will they help us uh, in the classroom? Will they help us help us reach people uh, around the world? Uh, this is very promising, to be sure. But I think one of the most exciting things about um, online learning is the opportunity that we now have to reach. Uh, students in other parts of the world. I'm very excited about some of the initiatives recently uh, to uh, reach students in African universities, for example. Uh, this is uh, very exciting, and even those who are afraid of technology surely must feel that it's promising to the extent that we can reach underserved populations uh, in different parts of the, uh, of the world, and I think that has to be something that universities take on as a mission. Thank you, Don. You should know that the perspective I bring to this question is that of a lifelong student of monasticism. <laughs> I, there's no doubt that technology is transforming, has transformed, will continue to transform education at all levels. But I think it's important to bear in mind that not all higher education is the same kind of thing. And the soul of the education that institutions represented at these tables uh, try to provide is something that results from putting students in the presence of a transforming individual. That's a member of the faculty, it's fellow students. And that is so essential, I think, to the experience we're talking about here that we have to bear in mind te that technology is only going to be a supplement to that kind of education. It may be a very powerful supplement. It will make faculty members more effective. But I think we have to be careful not to lose sight of the power of individuals communicating with one another, living in a community, that's the monasticism part, uh, as powerful forces in education. So there's, there continues to be an awful lot of snake oil sold in the name of uh, information technology, and one has to be wary of it. The musical analogy I would make is that <clears throat> after a certain point, you don't need a teacher to tell you where to put your fingers. You need somebody who can get you to practice. And it's not clear that a cathode ray tube or a plasma display is going to be able to get you to practice. Let me uh, pose a, a particular question. I have really two questions in my mind. One comes from my experience of using uh, this technology with students, and one from my just concern, just as someone who helps run a university, what the implication is going to be. First of all, the first one, which speaks to the sociology issue, Ruth. One of the interesting things I've found when I have my students on an email listserv of one kind or another is although it strikes me and I suppose strikes them initially as a very impersonal and cold form of communication, hardly transforming in the sense that Don talked about it a moment ago. But I find that over the semester, 
all of a sudden, very personal issues come up in their mail to me. And some are personal issues, some are issues with the class and so on, but as a result, when they come to my office hours, we really have, I think, a more interesting time. We just know more about each other, we have more interesting time, we get down to the issue a lot quicker. And in some funny way, much to my surprise, I found that this deepened my connection with the students. It didn't substitute for anything we did before. I mean, I think that's probably the point you make, but I'm wondering if you've either had that kind of experience or heard from your faculty of similar kinds of experience or this uh, sort of something that's sort of very particular to a peculiar experience I've had here. Well, I think there's, a, there's an analog version of the experience you described, which is nevertheless illustrative. I, for many years, taught Music 105 at Cornell's Introduction to Music Theory to 175 students. There were discussion sections, and I would keep one of those discussion sections myself and would have graduate students that carried on the other ones, but they had all heard the same lectures in the same room for me at the same time. At the end of the semester, when the course evaluation questionnaire came around, that humbling moment for the <laughs> member of the faculty, <laughs> One of the last ones I ever submitted, a student said, Mr. Randall seems a little bit like a pencil neck geek, but he seems to know his stuff. <laughs> um, anyway, when, when asked to answer the question, how do you rate the lecturer, the 25 students in my section always rated me higher as a lecturer than the other 125 students in the class, or 150. And I'm absolutely convinced that it's because those 25 know that I know their names and they have some reason to believe that I care about whether they learn this stuff. I don't know that they in fact learned any better, but it was demonstrably the case that once the personal bond was established, then this rather impersonal medium, lectures in this case, I would say email <coughs> in your case, once the personal bond is established, then one can extend it, amplify it, by a variety of means, one of which is digital technology. Any other comments, Ms. Ruth? I would say, Harold, that what I've heard from, from students and faculty alike is that um, this technology allows them to be in contact much more than the limited classroom office hour, faculty office hour um, pairing allows. And so there are tales of students getting on well, you, you know, of course, that if you walk across this campus at 3 in the morning, you know, it looks like every, all of the students are off. Uh, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, the students are able to send that email to a faculty member. And should they find that faculty member awake and on, on email, um, they're able to establish communication and have the most uh, wonderful conversation. So I think one of the things about the traditional modalities is that they are fixed in time uh, and, uh, and they are limited, uh, fixed in time and space, uh, what this technology allows is for that to happen all the time. Uh, when a faculty member is on leave uh, in India, uh, they can still advise uh, students uh, at, at any time of day. I don't know how often you have to try to get a hold of somebody in Japan um, on a different, uh, or Hong Kong, a different time. Um, email erases that. So. One of the wonderful things about this, it just opens up uh, all kinds of uh, opportunities for faculty and students to communicate. Thank you. Neil? Um, just a couple of points. First of all, I certainly agree with all the caveats about the potential 
uh, problems with this technology in terms of isolating people, uh, cutting down on the number of times you walk down the corridor to see somebody if you just send them an email, etc. So we have to be careful about that. And at the same time, Ruth's story about the person who was uh, uh, lost in cyberspace in the room, uh, if you read 19th century and early 20th century uh, tales about the problems of people who wandered off into what were then huge, enormous new stacks of library books in reserves and were never seen again because they, they, uh, they just they went from one book to another, to another, to another, and uh, we're, everyone was afraid for a while that we would have a society of misfits. Uh, I'm not saying this technology is the same as that, but that is a technology and it has the capacity to lose you like crazy, as any of us who've lived in stacks know. I'd only make two quick points. One. Uh, it is the case, at least as far as we can tell in some surveys we've done, that students who are less likely to speak up in class, and sometimes in our professional school, interactive teaching in the law school, business school, but also in uh, large classrooms in the undergraduate college, talk up much more, if you will, on email. The, uh, and this is particularly true of women and minority students, but also of uh, others who simply are uh, more shy. And the dialogue gets equalized uh, on email, and people uh, come forward uh, much more readily. And that's an interesting fact that we've, uh, or whether it's a fact yet, I don't know, but it's a, a trend, a pattern that we've seen uh, in several of our uh, situations. There's no question also that email office hours, quote unquote, can lead up to, reinforce, and then follow the real office hours, Harold said, and make it more meaningful. Finally, just for those who, of you who worry about books uh, and whether they get read anymore, and I'd be interested in the comments of the fellow panelists, we have tracked the undergraduate use of the major research library at uh, Widener very carefully uh, at, to see how many books uh, undergraduates check out. Uh, we can't tell how many they look at, but we can tell how many they check out. Uh, and uh, checked out and followed that pattern against how many visits to various important websites they make. And the two curves are very, very similar. Obviously, the number of website visits you can make are many more because uh, it's easier to do it. Uh, but if you do it in percentage terms, the number of books checked out of Widener Library by undergraduates is on a slope like this over the last decade. And, as, and obviously, the number of website visits is on a slope like this. So something seems to be happening whereby people who read a book then think they need more information, may go to the internet and get it, get the information, think, oh, well, maybe there's something more in a book, go back to the library, check out a few more books, and so on. So it doesn't, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it doesn't replace it for some students, but in general, the pattern seems to be interactive and positive both ways rather than substitutional. That pattern is the same at Princeton here. I take it's the same at all our institutions. I'm reminded that when uh, Neil made the comment about getting lost in the stacks, it was a kind of a nervous uh, recognition of that in the audience. I, I post out of uh, every time I teach a class, I post out in front of my office a list of excuses that are unacceptable uh, for missing a paper or something. One of them is I was locked overnight in the library. <laughs> That, that, that was actually very popular here yes, at Princeton. It was. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> so, Hunter? Um, 
I'm suspicious of these surveys on how many books students check out, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, I, I, um, I would like to offer another caveat, and that is the style with which writing occurs uh, on the Internet and in email. Uh, it, it really is deplorable in most cases. I mean, obviously, there's some counter cases, but in general, uh, this is a furthering of the soundbite society uh, from which I think we're all suffering. And I offer this not simply as a Luddite classicist um, who, who likes uh, long, periodic style uh, of Edward Gibbon, um, though I do like that. <laughs> but I, I think it's all the more necessary now to teach writing well on our campuses, uh, to learn how to express yourself, to make an argument in a thoughtful way, and to think past the superficial. And I, I must say that an awful lot of writing uh, on email is highly superficial. As George said, much of the, of the content is, is something you would never send if you had to post a letter. But it's not simply the content. It's the form. And I, I think that that's something we have to be very cognizant of as we educate the next generation. Let me, uh, if you don't mind, I'll go to another uh, issue right now, and then we'll try to get on to another subject. One of the issues that's often mentioned or often behind a lot of public comments is the notion that somehow we can use this technology to capture the best teacher in the country, and that person will now teach everybody the idea that to put it in sort of administrative terms, that the, uh, the student-faculty ratio will become almost infinite. You know, you find your best teacher somewhere, and that's the end of it. The rest of us don't have to worry about teaching any longer, just to put it in its extreme, in its extreme form. But the question is, to put that extreme example aside, whether we feel that this technology is best use to enrich what we currently do in a way that really wouldn't impact in any significant way the faculty-student ratio, or whether, in fact, it is an opportunity uh, to perhaps use this technology in a way that sustains the quality, but yet would allow a single faculty member to more effectively reach more students. I'm wondering if any of the uh, panelists would have any comment on that particular issue. George? Well, I, I think the technology will allow uh, very effective faculty members to reach more students, but I think it will be in a different mode and will certainly not involve the kind of education that we can do on campus with students uh, where there's close interaction between students and faculty. Uh, there, there are programs that use email very effectively to reinforce uh, the teaching that is done, that could be done by an exemplary teacher without having the teacher himself or herself have to do all of the iterative interactions uh, with students. And I think some of these are really quite promising, where, where every click going through a, a, a course segment is tracked and then the computer automatically generates an email that tells people if they don't seem to understand, if it's in, in international finance, you seem to be having problem with discounted present value, go back to exercise four and, and this can be tailored by other than faculty people. And so I think the idea that Ruth pointed to, that this technology can allow reaching out to underserved areas, I think is true if it's done very carefully and appropriately. But I don't think we should kid ourselves that that is a substitute for what we do on campus or that our faculty members will be interested except as the, the, the kind of 
content supplier will, will be interested in all of the back office work that needs to be done for that to be effective. So I, it's again, I think it's a, it's a, has enormous potential for extending the reach of the very best human capital that our campuses have. We have to be very careful to make sure it doesn't also pull our faculty into focusing on attention that should be focused on campus into these, uh, this outreach effort. Thank you. And, and I think an interesting test of this question is just to ask yourself what you remember about your own education, especially as it recedes into the mists <laughs> of history. And certainly at institutions like these, I wager that what most of us remember is not that Professor X taught us about discounted present value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there will be probably some number of people that you remember very well from your college and university days with respect to whom you can't remember a single thing they actually taught you, but that they had this transforming experience. Uh, and I think that's, as I say, the soul of, of this experience. We can look back and remember those people who changed the way we thought about everything and the way we went about life without necessarily remembering the specifics of this or that class. I think that will be very difficult to translate to any non-human medium or any medium that is so thoroughly mediated by a technology. And one will remember this world's greatest teacher from whom you learn something online, and you'll remember that person more or less the way you remember movie stars. I mean, really very effective. Uh, but will you remember them as somebody who changed the way you went about life, which is in the end what we're trying to do with students, I think. Thank you. Any other I'll just come back to the point Neil made. It's the interactive part that seems to me to be really important. If uh, the only value in, in having access to someone else's lecture from another university were being able to understand that person's thoughts, we have a very simple technology for doing that now, and that's called Read Her Books. And that's not the way we, that's not the way we operate, it seems to me, in strong universities. We don't just listen to someone lecture or read the book. There has to be interchange, and if the Internet can enable us to do that on a regular basis at a serious level, as George said, then it's beneficial. But otherwise, it's a glamorous tool, which is only that and doesn't contribute much to students' real learning. Thank you. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, just one quick thing. I, in our situation, what we're finding is that the probably the most effective use of distance learning, so-called, is at the mid-career uh, level. And uh, I completely agree with the fact that uh, these institutions are going to keep doing what they're doing and what they can do best, i.e. human education in a communal setting with real live faculty that you can talk to after the lecture and before and in the classroom and all the rest of it. Uh, so again, I go back to saying extending and reinforcing. But at, at mid-career levels, where you're not talking about degree programs and you're not talking about young people who are in a stage of developing all their values and growing uh, and so on, but maybe 35 to 45-year-olds who are in mid-career, uh, we found, for example, that if you get them together for a week uh, talk about the problems that you're going to address in the course, 
they all go back to their home base for maybe four or five or six weeks. Uh, they're online because they now know each other, they've talked about the issues and so on and so forth. Then they come back at the end for 10 or 12 days and hash out the conclusions. That model for people who are in mid-career works extremely well, but even there, without the bookends of the human contact on either side of the equation, it doesn't really work. Uh, which is not to say that some online learning, more or less pure online, can't work, but it's a limited capacity. You almost always need the presence of real other people at some point in the process. Thank you. Let's, let's move on to a different topic, although if any of you have any questions on this topic, we can take them when we get to the question period. I'd like to now move on to another issue which is uh, very much in the news regarding higher education and that is uh, the relationship of colleges and universities to other important institutions in our society, whether that's government, corporations, uh, other kinds of important institutions. Uh, there are really seems to be two themes to the discussions that one reads about this. One is the theme of independence, that is that colleges and universities ought to be very careful about their interactions with other institutions because to do so at some level threatens something important, namely the independence of colleges and universities to review and to think about in a critical way society's arrangements and so on and so forth. I think you're all familiar with that argument, that independence is one of the valuable things that we have to offer. On the other hand, there is also a great interest in increasing the interaction between universities on the one side, corporations, government, and so on on the other side, with a little bit different vision, namely that we have society's benefits at stake here, and what we ought to have is a kind of seamless web where we all sort of interact and transfer technology and so on with each other, so that each of these institutions gets strengthened in the process by the marriage of different insights, different commitments, and together uh, with this interaction, we serve society better in some sense. And uh, as we look ahead, there are increasing pressures, at least I believe, there are increasing pressures on both sides, namely to guard your independence and secondly, to pursue the opposite, namely the interdependence of uh, colleges, universities, other important institutions in society. So let me pose uh, to the panel uh, what their observations are regarding, as they look into the future, whether these kinds of interrelationships, partnerships, and so on will increase or decrease, and what, what they think about that. Uh, George? Uh, Don Randall uh, mentioned earlier he was a lifelong student of monasticism, and uh, that emboldens me to, to look back a thousand years or so to, to get a little perspective on this question, which has been with us for a very long time. I think in, in many ways our institutions, not, not just our specific institutions, but American higher education are, are the outcome not of the monastic community, but of the scholastic university. And the scholastic university, in a sense, was, was founded for professional preparation. I mean, now, professions then were, were you know, law, medicine, theology. It's not all of what we think of it, uh, as professions today. In fact, uh, the Teachers were paid directly by students. In some cases, students hired teachers uh, in order to, to have to prepare better for their professional roles. And I think our universities, the, the features that you have described, Harold, as, as 
increasing interaction uh, really carry forward that connection to the society uh, uh, very effectively. Uh, now, Pr Princeton, blessedly, has not developed a whole panoply of uh, professional schools, but for most of our universities, professional education is a very important part of what we do. Technology transfer is something that we're all interested in to make sure that the research that's done in our campuses does have a positive impact on society. We have a variety of programs for serving the larger society. And I think all of those are good, and I, I certainly Columbia is very much involved in all of them. But I, I think it's absolutely critical, even as we do more and more of that, um, if I can quote Derek Bott's book, that stuff beyond the ivory tower, that we also still retain the core impulse that uh, that Don's monasticism represents. I mean, I mean that was a, a, a community focused on moral and spiritual formation. It was quite deliberately not concerned, at least not explicitly uh, uh, concerned, with uh, gaining a position in this world. And I think we're also heirs to that tradition, although that's the one that is more under threat, uh, less, I think, at Princeton than at many institutions. And I, I guess the core purposes of, of both liberal education and research seem to me to be expressions of that monastic impulse. I mean, there, it's, research is inquiry as an end in itself. Liberal education is by design not concerned with professional preparation for a role in society. And I think it's crucial that we retain that role. Uh, and since all of the pressures are in the direction of more connection, more interaction, I mean, the, the government and uh, industry now, I mean, they would love to have us just become captive entities uh, within the corporate research departments. Uh, the pressure of, uh, of advertising, of having logos, I, all, all of what we know happens every day in universities. I think it's really crucial that we remember the, the monastic impulse is really what is the core of our motivation. And that means that our relationship over again is not just serving society, but also standing over against society in, in, in a way that the monastic community was quite deliberately set apart from the social order. And that, that means we, the, the role that universities have often played as social critics comes out, of, comes out of that tradition, and we need to nurture it. We need to de-absolutize, especially American society's preoccupation with the and totalizing of the present by having kind of a longer historical and a broader cross-cultural set of perspectives that calls into question what's taken for granted in our own society. So I would, I would argue that we need to lean hard in the direction of preserving the core monastic impulse over against the scholastic university. Thank you. Other comments? Hunter? Well, let me agree very strongly with George. You, you know, it just occurred to me, you, you do have a, a bunch of very old-fashioned people up here, so uh, you have to Don't take that into account. We'll Ruth, take that up later. <laughs> Ruth, I hope, I hope, Ruth, that you will speak up on this topic. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of us are, are quite old-fashioned, and you're hearing a lot of that in the conversation. But I want to agree strongly with George and underline a point or two. Um, Cornell is the land-grant university for New York State. We have a large obligation to the state of New York to serve the state in a number of different capacities. And in that respect, Cornell certainly has a special role, but it is also not atypical of American universities, which have broken in large part with that European tradition that George spoke of and delineated. And American universities for about 150 years now have responded very much to the surrounding society. And we've changed quite a lot. 
and we've changed in ways that are now quite dramatic, and George outlined those. So the pressure now is almost all in one direction, and that direction, put simply and coarsely, is follow the money. And it's just such a temptation now to follow the money, particularly in fields which need money in order to advance, the sciences in particular. Um, it's becoming irresistible. If you look at the Novartis arrangement uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, if you look at other corporate deals being made now, you can see that in spite of many, many concerns and anxieties on the part of some faculty members, other faculty members and institutions want to make these deals. And so we have to work very hard to counterbalance that and to promote what George Apley described as the monastic or scholastic tradition, and that's very difficult. And it, it calls for leadership at every level of the university, and I'm just very concerned that there is not enough pulling in that direction to keep us from going much further down that path. Any other comments? Neil? Neil? I, would, I just agree. I think all the, all the pressures are in the direction of centrifugal uh, uh, force, and uh, uh, whether it's uh, through IT and uh, the kind you, you of... You mean centripetal? No. <laughs> <laughs> we'll explain this difference shortly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. They're pulling us outward uh, in different directions, and whether it's in science or whether it's in information technology, I think the thing we have to realize is that these are now such incredibly capital-intensive things. If you want to get into them, very few institutions, even the wealthiest, have the capacity to do what is required. And that almost means, by definition, certain kinds of partnerships. And it's the actual nature of those partnerships where the trouble lies. And so we need good, strong guidelines on conflict of interest. We need good, strong guidelines on what you can do not for profit or for profit and when and why you should do it, etc. And most of us are in the middle of trying to work out those guidelines. But I, it is a transformative moment and it has a lot to do with the at, actual capacity that's out there to do more and the relative lack of uh, capacity inside the institutions or expertise to carry it out by themselves. I would just say thanks to all of you and others uh, and Harold uh, on this uh, fund drive because while no institution can do it alone, the better insulated institutions are with endowment, with annual giving and so on, the less they will have to be uh, thinking about or be tempted by the wrong kinds of arrangements. Thank you. Any other comments on this particular issue? Yes, the relationship between our institutions and society is not unlike the relationship between the teacher and the student about which we were speaking a moment ago. And underlying it all in some considerable degree, I think, is simply trust, which is perhaps in short supply in our time. I mean, the, the student has to be willing to put him or herself into the hands of the teacher and suspend disbelief for a while, trust the teacher to get them to do something that's good for them. And the kind of independence we're talking about for these institutions, I think, has precisely that relationship to society at large. 
although it's not so easy to say, just give us the money and trust us, the fact of the matter is that this kind of rambunctious, even, separation from society or holding back from the pressures of the moment is what has ultimately enabled universities to make their greatest contributions to society. Our, our responsibility is an enormous responsibility to the past and an enormous responsibility to the future, and those responsibilities are not always consistent with the responsibility of the next fiscal quarter. And universities, therefore, I think, need to, as George and others have suggested here, to stake out that place in which they can pursue an independent course which will ultimately enable them to serve society better. But in the meantime, there has to be some ability to trust these institutions to come up with crazy ideas which are the ones that are ultimately transformative. Thank you. Let me pursue just a, an aspect of this which at least comes up in this connection. Of course, the, the great glory of the American research universities in the last uh, century uh, and has been the uh, disciplinary organization. That has given, given them their strength and made enormous amount of progress in this area, if you just think of movement in the last, in the last century or so. And yet no one else in society is organized this way. I, mean, I can't think of any other organization that's organized along physics, chemistry, literature, etc., whatever the disciplines are. And that means, I think, that often our interaction with uh, units outside the university uh, increasingly is, needs to take place across disciplinary lines. And in addition, many people uh, feel that indeed on the frontiers of science or scholarship anywhere, that the interdisciplinary problems are the important ones and that sometimes structuring along disciplines, at least the traditional disciplines, uh, could, if not handled appropriately, get in the way of progress. I myself have always been sort of a little agnostic on this because I think cross-fertilization can either produce something quite wonderful or it can produce something quite awful depending on how it, how it happens. It could be uh, uh, cross-sterilization as opposed to cross-fertilization <laughs> uh, can take place. So I've often been sort of uh, here and there on the issue myself, but I'm wondering if any of my colleagues here have any view on how the structure of disciplines will evolve or change, if at all, uh, as we look ahead into the future? Well, I think there's some very promising developments. Um, I have been recently had a chance to, uh, to visit some uh, research facilities in the corporate world, uh, both uh, in technology and in, uh, let's say, biological sciences, um, and discovered that a new construction they put together clusters uh, that bring many different disciplines together. Um, and when the corporations decide that this is the trend, uh, look out, because um, uh, we're likely to see more and more of it. I, I was very impressed. We just started an engineering uh, program at, at SMET, and I was very impressed that the uh, engineers uh, insist that they don't want an engineering gym, they don't want an engineering building, they want to be with the humanists um, and with the social scientists. Uh, and I think that there is a lot to be said for that because problem solving is, after all, a part of what we do in the academy. Um, we may um, downplay that sometimes, but it is a, it is a function of our uh, mission to serve society and to, to address problems. And I think that 
uh, certainly some, in some of the new interdisciplinary combinations, the opportunities are far greater. Um, and the speed with which we solve those problems is greater in combination with other disciplines. So I, I personally think this is a promising direct, direction. And yet again, I don't think we know yet how it should develop, nor should we try to formulate it. It should happen organically, it, it seems to me, uh, among scholars, uh, between scholars working around um, issues, um, and so on. Um, these disciplines evolve, um, constructs change. Uh, I'm very impressed that the Nobel Committee uh, recognized this year that the creation of the integrated circuit uh, was worthy of a uh, Nobel uh, Prize, even if many scholars thought that, in fact, that was a very serious mistake. Um, also, the Institute very recently, Institute for Advanced Study, very recently acknowledged that computer science had a place in the Institute. We change very slowly. But I think one of the things with interdisciplinary uh, programs is that it facilitates change at a much more uh, rapid and felicitous pace. Well, would any of the panelists feel that uh, 10 to 20 years from now, as one looked at the disciplines in our uh, universities, would we see a consolidation? For example, would languages and literatures be taught in a single department instead of eight or 10 different departments? Would there be a department of biology instead of molecular biology, evolutionary biology, et cetera, et cetera? Would we, there's this enormous number of disciplines, and I you know, I think everyone understands there are really very many important cross-disciplinary problems, but is, do we think we're really going to restructure the sociology in the university itself? Hunter? Uh, Harold, I don't think we could go that far, but I do see changes occurring as we speak. Um, if you look at the field of genomics now, it is bringing faculty members together from what used to be widely disparate departments. Everyone wants to be a biologist now. And that means that computer scientists, engineers, physicists, and chemists on our campus are all now working very closely with biologists to solve problems in genetics and genomics. And I find this quite exciting, actually, because it's not something that the provost uh, required of anyone. It's not something that the university espoused. It's something that faculty members developed on their own. Um, by necessity in terms of, serves, of solving problems. Um, I think that is transforming the nature of many of those disciplines. It doesn't mean they're all going to be housed in one large department, but I see change occurring very rapidly there, and I think that's not the only example. Any other comments on this, Neil? Yeah, I would agree. I think that the, what we're finding is that on the whole, most disciplines uh, find it necessary on the one hand to keep boring down and down and down to find out more about a particular thing, but when they found out about it, they have to bring it back up and connect it to something else. And it was only 25, 30 years ago when molecular biology was born that in some sense the molecular people would scarcely speak to the evolutionary people or whatever. Now, I think almost everybody agrees that across the spectrum, you need the molecular techniques, but there's no point having them unless you can say something intelligent about developmental biology, organismic biology, and evo ultimately evolution. So that we are finding the reconnections uh, taking place. Uh, that, I think, doesn't mean that you just merge everybody together, though. You're not, in order to make progress down one avenue in molecular biology, you're going to need very good molecular biologists. The real question is, how can you bring that stuff back and reconnect it to other people so that you have a kind of continuum of subjects 
there and in other areas of the university as well. But uh, there's no, no question. Uh, one, one quick measure. I can't remember uh, the last time I saw an actual new department created, a new department created. Maybe computer science was the last one. I can remember about 50 centers and institutes that we've created at Harvard in the last 10 years. The institution is expanding, but it is not expanding in the way it expanded for the first 100 years of the university's life. It is expanding now in terms of interdisciplinary centers, institutes, and so on, rather than more and more discrete departments. And that gives you some sense of what's happening. It may be good or bad. It may be 20 years from now we'll be cursing the centers of the institutes, wishing we could do away with them the way some people wish we could do away with departments. But we're reifying them. Nonetheless, they're there, and right now they're serving on the whole a good purpose. Well, Neil, we've had the same experience here at Princeton. In fact, our provost has suggested that we adopt a rule of no more than one center per faculty member <laughs> to be established. <laughs> Here are two institutes will do. <laughs> two so there is a great enthusiasm uh, for this all around. You know, some of us were at uh, a meeting in Chicago last week, I think Monday of last week, this week, excuse me, and in which uh, Sir Martin Rees uh, uh, spoke to us. The us was a group of uh, college, uh, university presidents there. And he made a, what uh, Hunter reminded me this morning was a very interesting point, namely things at the very, very small scale, that is the quantum physics scale, really are quite simple. A few different parameters, some forces and so on get you there. And the same thing on the largest scale, that is in the huge universe out there, uh, which really it's quite simple. And uh, that's not to say it's easy to solve all the problems, but they're really kind of simple. Everything in between, namely what we experience every day, is hopelessly complex. And he went on to discuss that in a very effective way. And I think Hunter reminded me this morning, because I had the same response, it seemed to me that that rather simple observation, as I began to think about it, uh, re, uh, reinforced for me, one, how complex life is. And one of the things that that meant to me was uh, to make sense out of it, to make sense out of our joint efforts, that the humanities and social sciences are really much more important than they uh, than they play in the public in the public sphere, which is in the thrall, to say it in a kind of pejorative way, of, of scientific discovery. So let me, before we turn to the audience, just ask uh, the last question to the panelists regarding how they see the importance of the humanities and social sciences within the liberal arts education or the university, broadly speaking, as we go ahead. This deck is surely <laughs> stacked. <laughs> well, let's hear from the monastic order. <laughs> I don't know if I want to hear from the monastic order or the classic order. You have here one monastic, one classicist, one Renaissance literature person, one divine and one romance language is literature, but we're the least characteristic group of university presidents in the world. <laughs> in that case, what do you have to, to say for yourself? We're, we're all connected with Princeton and we all have last names that start with R or S. I mean, <laughs> George, 
George said this morning he's used to being sort of down near the bottom of the alphabet with R-U, but he's used to having a lot more people in front of him <laughs> today. But, Hunter. Uh, Harold, let me speak from the pagan perspective. <laughs> um, I, I do think the humanities and social sciences are more important than ever, but you certainly wouldn't know it from reading the newspaper or even looking in faculty meetings because the sciences clearly over the last 50 years have developed enormous power. Uh, they are very expensive and so they dominate the headlines and frankly their rate of discovery is nothing sh short of remarkable now, particularly in fields like genetics and astrophysics where the discoveries are appearing every week in the newspaper and they're major, so we all have to pay attention to that. But as Harold said, everything in the middle is quite complex and that's what humanists and social scientists try to deal with and it's all the more important that we <coughs> help them do so. Uh, they have not always been their own best friends, frankly. If I think about the culture wars, uh, many of the theoretical disputes in the humanities over the past 25 years, I think we lost momentum, quite a lot of momentum and there's a lot of discouragement, in fact, in some of those faculties and in some of those fields and methodological uh, controversies. But it seems to me we all need to work hard to try to ensure that they have a strong place in our universities for the reasons that we've been rehearsing. And especially now, I think we need to come to the aid of humanists and find some ways of helping them develop a bigger voice on campus, you might say. They're still enormously important. I had the pleasure of attending uh, yesterday's wonderful performance of Homer and Beethoven. Nothing moves me, at least. Uh, more than Homer and Beethoven. Um, but there are other things in the humanities now that I think are really important. Many new ethnic studies programs have developed and brought to our attention important and formerly marginalized literature and cultural materials. And it behooves all of us, obviously, to spend a lot of time with those materials and to come to appreciate and learn them. And so I, I think this is really important to universities, and again, the tendency is the other way, so we have to work hard in this direction. Thank you. Any other comments on this converted group? Uh, yeah, this, this very uncharacteristic group. I, I can't help, I can't resist making a very brief uh, um, unpaid political announcement for uh, the Columbia's core curriculum. And one of the, the, the key course in it is called Contemporary Civilization, and it begins with the Greeks. Uh, and, and the the thought behind the, the whole of the core, which is a 10 integrated, 10 courses that all students have to take to graduate, is to, to understand the traditions that have shaped our current ideas and institutions in order to get some distance on them. So contemporary civilization is not just a survey of Western civilization, but it's with an eye toward trying to understand also what's going on in the contemporary world. And that seems to me what the humanities and social sciences distinctively have to bring. And the United, the United States is so present-oriented and so individualistic and so, frankly, provincial in terms of knowing of other traditions around the world that it's it's absolutely critical that we get, that the university plays its role of standing over against and raising questions about that society uh, on a level that, that goes below what is just taken for granted by the, the larger public and especially by our media. So I, I think the humanities and social sciences have a very important role to play and it becomes critical as we go forward. Well, thank you. As I promised, I said at 10.30 we would get to questions from the audience, so I really want to 
turn to that now to ask you to direct any question either to the panel as a whole or to any particular panelist. We've adopted two rules for this question period. One, I just made up right now, I'll tell you what that one is, and that is no question. Anything that lasts more than two minutes is not a question, it's a speech, so please uh, restrict yourself to, um, to questions only. And secondly, this is a decision we made jointly as a panel we had breakfast together, namely, all questions on football will be answered only by Ruth Simmons and Don Randall. <laughs> Let's go, let's go to questions now. Yes. Yes. If you don't mind, I'll just repeat the question. I hope I get it right, because I think it's hard to hear upstairs. The question is, regardless of how the information technology revolution impacts any of the campuses that are represented up here this morning, what impact it will have on smaller schools and what will be their prospects in the years ahead? Remember one, panel want to take it? Well, I'd be happy to take a first crack at it. I, I think that it will have, the, the insofar as the, the distance learning is a threat to some of our uh, institutions. I think it will be in the the middle range institutions that in fact offer something like what distance learning offers, namely uh, one-way communication in large classes with very little interaction and feedback from faculty to students. Uh, it seems to me not inconceivable that distance learning over time could threaten those sorts of institutions just because what they provide is not all that different from what, in fact, in some ways may be inferior to what one can get from a very effectively mediated, uh, electronically mediated uh, instruction. I, my guess is even they will evolve and find niches that work around the uh, information revolution or the internet uh, assisted delivery of courses. But that would be the place where I think the greatest threat lies. Thank you. Yes, over here. Right on the aisle. Audie? Thank you, Harding. The question concerned really the impact of this new technology on the very large public institutions in our side, which are not represented uh, here today, although both Hunter and I have uh, a lot of experience in those institutions. And may, Hunter, would you have any comment on that? Well, um, I, I think there's some possible tendency along those lines, but what I notice in the large and strong publics is, is actually trending in the other direction. They are becoming more and more private. 
if you look at the major publics today, they are virtually becoming private universities. They're raising a great deal of private money. They're actually, in some cases, intentionally moving away from their role as public universities and becoming much more like a Cornell uh, or uh, other large private universities. So I think there's more similarity than one might expect between the major privates and the major publics, um, though there may be a tendency along the lines you suggest in the future as a result of this revolution. I think much of the change will be driven by the changing demographics of the student body as well. So a, a good deal of public higher education is aimed at as they say, non-traditional learners. That is not these 18 to 21-year-olds, but people who are in the workforce already. The large system of community colleges, um, two-year two institutions, are likely to be strongly affected by this, in part because of the people they're trying to serve who simply aren't going to come give up everything for two or four years. Any other comments? And you can see that it, it very strongly in community colleges now. Um, I have... Um, spend a lot of time with a local community college, and uh, they are far, far ahead of us uh, at Smith, for example, and most universities that I'm familiar with in terms of what they do through technology. So it's, it's happening there, and it's going to escalate. Uh, there's no question about it. And I think there is pressure, both from uh, prospective students uh, and from governments uh, for, uh, for uh, community uh, colleges and, and some state colleges to hasten the facility with which people can use um, online learning. Yeah, I think I'd just add one word. One, uh, a lot of these experiments have not worked. A couple have actually closed down already. Uh, and one reason why is that it's extremely hard to deliver good education online. <laughs> and it's very expensive, much more expensive than most people realize. Production costs are enormous. But at if the same, done well. if it's done well, yes, exactly. Uh, at the same time, I think it is true, as people have said, the pressure to move in that direction, whether people know what they're going to get in the end or not, is very great. Uh, and you can see in California, for example, that the the demographic projections for the number of students they'll have six or eight years from now far outdistance their plans uh, to build new campuses and facilities. Far outdistance them. And so unlike what happened in the last 30, 40 years, there is not the same kind of preparation for residential kind of education being made. And what we may end up is in a default position. I could just add just one thing on this, on this issue, Hotting, reflecting uh, at least my experience at the University of Michigan and elsewhere in public higher education. There always has been a tension between quality and access. And that's really the important issue that lies behind, I believe, your question. To the extent that one focuses on quality and that becomes a dominant issue, uh, I believe these technologies will play a major role, but will not, for example, change the cost of delivery of the quality education. I believe that's the biggest fallacy in all this discussion, namely that somehow this technology will decrease the cost. I really don't believe that if you're talking about quality. It may increase the benefits and it may increase the quality of education itself. And so these pressures being felt by public institutions or elsewhere, I think, will end up on that dilemma. That is, are you trying to just get people there or are you trying to really deliver quality education, whether in the public or the private sphere? But let me go to another question now. Yes, right over here. Yes. 
the question has to do with the academic year. I think the implication is would we be would we better serve our students to lengthen the academic year to let them take even uh, more advantage of the resources and possibilities that are existing on our campuses. And I'd like to I, I, I actually think that um, our students would be much better off if the semesters were longer. And I, this is uh, homage to Aaron Lemonick, uh, who always used to say that at Princeton, that um, the semester was getting shorter and shorter. And frankly, I think it leads to all kinds of stresses, not just the failure to take advantage of the wealth of opportunities available on campus but it also intensifies the experience sometimes in quite an undesirable way. Uh, most of our campuses are dealing with issues of civility, uh, breakdown uh, of relations and departments, uh, and so on. It's a lot of stress, both on faculty and on students. And one of the questions that I've begun to pose is whether or not we wouldn't all be better served if we uh, stretched out the semester a bit. Well, I'd want to agree. I think it it shouldn't get shorter and I think there is that insofar as faculty control calendars there's always the temptation to, to shorten semesters but I as someone who always worked from junior high school on in, in what during term time and especially in the summers and had had enormously valuable learning experiences in those in those summers I I guess I'm re, I would resist having our students uh, let's say turning us into a, fully into a monastic uh, community <laughs> having them only involved in, in in the activities and so on on campus with it but and i think that the, the rhythm of also going out and, and actually being engaged with the wider society is uh, is very healthy for people in the ages of 18 to 22 as we're talking about undergraduates so while i think it it it, it may be have become too compressed when semesters have been shortened, which I, I think ought to be resisted, I'm not sure stretching it out to all years that the costs wouldn't outweigh the benefits. Any other comments about that? Just make one quip. It's always seemed to me that changing an academic calendar is like trying to move a graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> sort of can't get there from here, but I think it's a, I have some sympathy, however, to your perspective, I must say. Howard? Now the question is, given how things are developing, the information technology revolution and other forces, is there some change taking place in the relationship between the faculty and institution or some, some change that might take place as we look into the future? Any comments on that? I think there's no question that free agency has come to academe. <laughs> and especially in the very best institutions. And so this is something I think we all need to uh, concern ourselves with whether we study monasticism or not. Um, you know, I said I studied it. I didn't say I was one. <laughs> but it's, it, it is really like sports in lots of ways. That is, your best people have options. And institutional loyalty is not what it once was among many such people. Uh, if one believes in the force of the marketplace, one is bound to recognize 
how those forces will affect us. And in fields like computer science, anybody who is any good has options that are very much more lucrative than anything any university could dream of providing. We provide other kinds of things here. Part of it is this rambunctious independence and a freedom, a, a trust that we put in these people to go think up things without looking over their shoulders too much, and that still enables us to retain talent. If we begin to look more and more like the typical corporate entity, then that loyalty to the institution is likely to go away altogether. Any other comments? Sure. Sorry, I, I, that, it seems to me that a, a, an enormous issue, and, and I realize that I've talked more than I should, but let me just say a, a couple of words about it. We, we have just worked through the process uh, on the Columbia campus of an intellectual property policy, and uh, we have done so uh, based on the very good experience we've had in the past with intellectual property concerned with patents, in which we've been extremely aggressive in, in tech transfer and commercializing. So just to give you a data point, last year we had $145 million of revenue on licensing fees on our patents. So it, it, it is a very major focus of what we're doing. But we've designed that process so that the, it's a win-win situation. It isn't just the Lone Ranger. The, 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 individual, the principal investigators certainly do get some of the benefits, but the lion's share is reinvested into the institution as a whole. And, I think it's absolutely crucial that we also do that now with any of these new forays into uh, distance learning, internet enhanced learning, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why we had to wrestle through this intellectual property issue. And when, in the course of the discussion, what was interesting is that many of the strongest faculty, uh, we had a faculty committee chaired by Jane Ginsburg, who's a, an international uh, scholar of intellectual property issues, and Ira Katznelson, a very distinguished faculty member in political science. And, in the process, the faculty themselves came to recognize that this was a policy we had to have in order to place constraints on the free agency uh, model. And so that uh, it would, it was our policy does not permit a faculty member to go out and work for another entity and sell his or her wares for private benefit rather than have that negotiated by the institution with shared ownership of or shared benefits from whatever arrangements are made. And the faculty are the ones who recognized that we had a collective interest, that it wasn't the, the administration or the university over against the faculty, but the faculty as a whole was going to be uh, sucked totally into these centrifugal forces uh, that pull away from the center unless we asserted the rights of the institution to uh, mediate whatever is, happens with the intellectual property of, uh, of faculty in this new era. I think it's critical that we do that, or we will just have free agency in the same way as sports. We already have too much of that in terms of negotiation, for, uh, trying to recruit people and so on. We certainly can't afford to have it in this further intellectual property area. Ruth? I heard Keenan Sayan, who is the founder of Sycamore uh, Networks, give a very moving address to a group of high school students describing the difference between universities and corporations. Um, in essence, he said that students come to universities, they pay an enormous amount of tuition. Uh, they're punished relentlessly as students. They have to work very hard. Uh, they are assessed rigorously on their performance. Then they leave and what do they do? They come back as often as possible. They give all their money to the university. They pay over and over again for the privilege of having been 
in the community uh, of learning. Um, I personally think that one of the great dangers we face as institutions is that faculties are tending to see us less and less as those communities. We, we face a great risk. The most important thing that we do is um, establish that relationship between teachers and students and between and among learners. That's the heart of the enterprise. The bells and whistles, all the lovely things that we do on top of that um, result in all kinds of fantastic things. But it's the bond that one comes to hold that keeps us tied to these places. And unfortunately, I talked, Neil, I talked to one of your faculty recently, and he told me that, <laughs> he told me that uh, he had become independently wealthy, and he really didn't need to be a faculty member anymore. What keeps such a person in the academy? I think we're going to be faced more and more with that, just that problem. Is Keenan's notion that we have this community which pulls us and binds us together, one that will really sustain itself over time? I certainly hope so, but I think that we ought to talk a lot as universities and colleges about that community, about making it, about sustaining it, about um, making it uh, flourish. Uh, and that's what's going to keep people here, not a lot of the other things that are developing. Thank you. It's a little harder to see uh, hands up in the balcony, so let me go to the balcony. There's someone waving a hand. <laughs> question is for my colleagues here what their view is of their responsibilities for alumni education in the years ahead. My guess is we're all doing a lot more. We certainly have more, more alumni trips to other countries led by faculty members. We have more alumni colleges on campus. We are experimenting with distance learning, quote unquote, in terms of uh, interactive telecom. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, and I'd be very surprised if everybody isn't uh, working along those lines. Any further comments, or does everyone just agree? Agree. We're all I, I think every, everyone agrees. Uh, one last question here, then I have a few comments to make. Yes, right in front. question has concerns the future of graduate education. Uh, what changes may be on the horizon in that area? would like to take that up. It's altogether terrific if more PhDs go into non-academic 
positions, but it shouldn't be because there aren't any academic ones. Um, in many European countries, the role of PhDs in broadcasting, publishing, you name it, is exceeds very greatly what it is in this country, and I think I think uh, the quality of broadcasting, publishing, a good deal in this country could benefit from the presence of more uh, PhDs. The, the question, I think, about graduate education will have a lot to do with the structure of the disciplines, which we touched on earlier. And so PhDs in what uh, are, are we going to need, and will they continue to be the, the standard disciplines? What, in what fields will we think it sensible to offer a doctoral degree? And that, I think, will steadily change, as it has in the last 25 years. It's my own sense that one of the ongoing challenges in PhD education, something I really understood much better after reading some of the work that Neil and my predecessor Bill Bowen did together, is why it is that the is a tremendous drop-off between those that enter PhD programs and those who get PhDs. It's an enormously huge investment we make in graduate education. And it's always been something I've not fully understood as to why a larger number of students who enter this program and to whom such a big investment is made, both by them and by us. I mean, they make a huge investment as well. Uh, it seems to me that that's something that needs, continues to need our attention as, as we go ahead. Well, let me draw today's uh, session together in two ways. First of all, I would like to recognize the presence in the audience of one of my predecessors here at Princeton, a very distinguished president, Bob Goheen. Bob, would you stand so you Second, uh, I really, before I turn to our chair to close today's session with a few comments, I really would like to ask today's audience to join me in expressing our appreciation for the panel for taking time to be with us here at Princeton this morning. Thank you all very much. Let me say in behalf of the panel, if I may, that despite all these thanks to us for taking time from our busy schedules, in this group of people you have an enormous reservoir of loyalty to this institution, and it's a little bit as if our mothers had asked us to do something. <laughs> My mother would certainly appreciate that remark. <laughs> now let me turn to our chair. Uh, thank you. Uh, clearly this has been an extremely um, stimulating discussion for all of us. Uh, before we adjourn, I wanted to thank each of our panelists with a gift from the APGA. This is our newest publication, an updated edition of the Princeton Graduate School of History edited by Tricia Marks, Graduate School Class of 1972, with an introduction by Dean John Wilson. For those that are interested, this will be available uh, from Princeton University Press uh, in the U-Store next week as well. Again, thank you, Presidents Randall, Rawlings, Rudenstein, Rupp, Simmons, and President Shapiro. We are deeply grateful 
that you could be with us today to celebrate the centennial. And thank you to all of you.